Our first scripture reading comes indeed from Deuteronomy chapter 22. We'll be reading the verses 13 through 30. And in the context of Lord's Day 41, we will be further reflecting upon these laws. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity, and yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver, and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there's a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country... A man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her. Then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor, because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife, so that he does not uncover 
his father's nakedness. Our second reading is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll read the verses 18 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We also read what the Catechism explains to us on the basis of the Seventh Commandment and Lord's Day 41, the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. What does the Seventh Commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives, both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Following upon the preaching of God's word, we'll be singing from Psalm 51, verse 4. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I was instructed coming to preach here that in the course of catechism preaching, you were up to Lord's Day 41 this afternoon. Now, last time I preached on Lord's Day 41 in the congregation at Rockingham, our older youth were at that time dealing with many of the Old Testament laws. And for that reason, this sermon also looks at those laws related to the Seventh Commandment. And therefore, that's what we want to reflect upon this afternoon. We confess that our God is a God who does not change. And therefore, the morals and the standards which he gave to his people, also in the Old Testament, uh, the morals and standards that he will still apply to us today. We need to view laws like the ones that we've read this afternoon within the context of the whole of Scripture, however, remembering that right from the very beginning, the Lord God gave to Adam and Eve sexuality as a gift. As a gift that would be used for completing the mandate that God had given to them 
of filling the earth. But it was more than that, for sexuality is more than mere procreation. It unites two people in intimate love. Recently, in Rockingham, we've been looking at those early chapters in Genesis. And one thing that became clear when you go through Genesis 1, those six days of creation, is how distinct humanity is from the animal kingdom. And I wonder if you've ever thought about that. But God deliberately created many, many animals all at once. Many fish all at once. Many birds all at once. And yet he chose to create only one man and one woman. And you have already there an indication that sexuality for humanity is of an entirely different order than in the animal kingdom. For humanity, God has ordained not only that it is for procreation, but bringing two people together in an intimate covenantal way for life. And so I preach to you this afternoon protecting the gift of sexuality. We're going to be looking, first of all, at those laws that we read, and then reflecting upon the presuppositions embodied in them, and finally, reflecting upon their implications. First of all, then, those laws, and it might be handy if you have your Bible open with you to Deuteronomy 22. The first law that we encountered was the scenario when a man gets married, and upon his wedding night, encounters that the fact that his wife, whom he took to be a chaste and moral Israelite woman, all of a sudden turns out not to be a virgin. At least, that's one of the scenarios. The other scenario is that for some or other reason, after the first wedding night, he really finds out that he doesn't actually like this woman. The word hate in Hebrew derives its meaning from the context. In English, that's a little bit difficult because when we use the word hate, we really mean a kind of a loathing of somebody. But in Hebrew, when you talk about hate, you mean that you don't love the person. He finds out that he doesn't really like her, and he begins to regret that he married her, and he decides to bring a false accusation. That's the other scenario, that his wife on the wedding night wasn't a virgin. In both cases, the case is to come before the elders of the gate. They are well, the equivalent of the, uh, the local jurisprudence, the local court, if you will. And they bring to the elders at the gate the accusation and the parents of the girl who gave her in marriage to the young man are expected to produce evidence of the virginity of their daughter. That has everything to do with the way a marriage was consummated in those days. You had a special tent set up. There was a week's worth of celebration. And the room and the bedding for that first night was provided by the parents of the girl because it would provide the evidence through the blood of her virginity. And they were to keep that evidence. 
they had given their daughter in good faith to this young man. Now, if it's shown that the young man has made this up and really just didn't want to continue with this marriage, then he's to be fined 100 shekels, having also been punished. Now, translation, the ESV is kind of interesting, isn't it? It says that the elders shall take him and whip him. That's a little bit more specific than the Hebrew. He is to be punished in some kind of way. In those days, it might have been a, a whipping or at least a beating with a rod. But that's not made specific. But he's to be fined. And we should realize that in the days of Moses, an annual wage for a laborer was about 10 silver shekels. So when you're asked to pay a fine of 100 shekels, you are looking at the equivalent of 10 years' wages for a laborer. That's no small fine. And in fact, if such a young man did not have considerable savings, such a fine might be enough to force him into debt slavery. And apart from the fine, he is to retain that woman as his wife. In other words, and this is really the point of the law, he is to be financially responsible for her for the rest of his life. Also, in Israel, situations could arise where a marriage became simply untenable for at least a time for two people to live together. That's possible also even in Israel. But even if such a situation would occur and the wife would go and live separately, he would still be responsible for her. He would technically still be married to her and therefore have to take care of her. The thing we also need to realize, brothers and sisters, is that with an accusation like that, that a girl is no longer a virgin, not only did she receive a bad name, but also given that he has now consummated that marriage, if he would divorce her in that society, nobody else would marry her. You married a virgin. The ability also of a single woman to be able to survive in society at the time was very difficult. And so the Lord is making provision for a woman in a very difficult situation. However, what would happen if the girl was indeed guilty? She indeed was no longer a virgin and married this man under false pretenses. Then, says the Lord, the death penalty must occur. For what she has done is tantamount to adultery. In addition, she has given false evidence not only to the man that she's married, but to her own parents who were responsible for her. Quite plainly, she has lied and covered up. Now, we should realize that many of the laws in the laws of Moses that talk about a death penalty 
talk about a death penalty as a maximum punishment. All too often, you know, we read the book of Deuteronomy or Exodus and Leviticus and we have the idea uh, that, well, if you lived back then in that society, uh, for 101 different things you might be falling dead. In fact, it wasn't like that at all. And if you look at what the Lord God says in Numbers chapter 35, verse 31, you quickly realize what the situation was. In Numbers 35, the Lord speaks about a very special situation with something else that requires the death penalty, namely murder, premeditated murder. And in Numbers 35, verse 31, God says this, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. Now the presupposition, and I'm just using one text here, but there are many, many texts in God's Word and especially also in the law that show this. The point of that is that in virtually every other case where it talks about a death penalty in Scripture, it's a maximum penalty that provides a bargaining chip to the victim. In other words, the victim, the, sorry, the perpetrator may buy out the death penalty by paying a ransom. Such a negotiation is overseen by the elders of the gate or by a judge, but it's up to the victim to accept that ransom payment. If they do not wish to accept it, indeed, they may sue for the death penalty. In fact, there's a very interesting proverb in the book of Proverbs where somebody is warned against committing adultery and thinking that they can buy their way out of it. Because, says Proverbs, you know that when you commit adultery with another man's wife, you can make him so angry that he won't want any money whatsoever. And he'll just demand the death penalty. The next law that we looked at was the case of a betrothed virgin. You see that in verse 23. And we need to understand, too, that in Israel, betrothal was a little bit different to our engagement in our society. When we get engaged, we indeed are making a promise to hopefully marry the person at a later date. And it is always a tragedy if an engagement has to be broken off. Nevertheless, it is not impossible for that to happen. A betrothal in Israel, however, was not an engagement but it was actually signing the marriage contract. Now, the marriage contract would go into effect at a later date, but that contract had been signed. And so a betrothed virgin is somebody that has signed the marriage contract, but that marriage itself has not yet come about. And so the situation is twofold. This is a situation where a man finds a betrothed virgin, lies with her in the city, and there's a situation in the country. And what God's Lord is doing is setting out some basic principles of justice. 
In other words, if it happened in the city, you can presume that the girl had opportunity to cry out if she wasn't a willing partner, and somebody would have heard her and rescued her. And you have to remember that in ancient cities, the whole point of a city was that you had a group of houses close together that could be protected by a wall. Now, a wall is expensive and it requires a lot of hours, manpower to build. So you build a wall and then everybody's got to live inside of those walls to be protected. That means that houses were incredibly close together, very, very small, even much smaller than apartment blocks in the Netherlands, if you can imagine that, and very thin mud brick walls. Very easy, or very easy to be heard. And therefore the assumption is that if something like that happens and you're in trouble, you can call out and there will always be people around that will hear you. In such a case then, if there was no cry for help, the assumption is that both parties were willing and both ought to be punished. And therefore, it is treated as adultery. And both are to suffer the death penalty, once again, as a maximum punishment, so that it can be ransomed off. However, if it happened in the open country, the assumption is that the girl might have been able to call for help. But she's out in the country. Maybe nobody heard her. And she's given the benefit of the doubt. There is no punishment for her, only for the man concerned. And then finally, two cases of fornication are given to us. And here too, we have the situation where somebody meets a virgin who is not betrothed in this case and lies with her and they're found. In this case, there's the obligation to marry, says the law. And on top of the marriage, a fine is to be paid of 50 shekels of silver to the father of the girl. The father of the girl had not originally desired to give his daughter in marriage to this particular man, and yet that man has gone and taken her. And so he has paid compensation and a fine, and it's a serious fine, of 50 shekels. It goes to him. It's not a dowry. A dowry in those, in those times went to the wife. It was her insurance policy, as it were. The fine goes to the father of the girl, the equivalent of five years' wages. And there's an important rider as well, not mentioned here, but in the parallel law in Exodus chapter 22, we're told also that the parents of the girl, namely the father, has the right to say, you are not going to marry my daughter. He can determine that that young man was not suited for his daughter. So despite the moral obligation to marry, the parents of the girl also are asked to make a judgment as to whether such a marriage is going to be edifying and profitable for the daughter concerned. And the father can make that judgment call. Well, if that's the case, you might ask, why would it be worded in such a way that even if he's violated her, in other words, even if there might have been rape, 
that a father would, would think even about giving his daughter away in marriage to that man. And from our standpoint in our society, that is stunningly crazy. But then we also need to remember and go back in time to the situation in Israel where you've got a daughter who would love to be married and who because of what has happened will not get that chance again. Which is why the father of the girl and and the way you see it happen also in Scripture, the way you see it play out is always in, um, uh, in discussion with his daughter, determines whether or not that marriage might yet still go ahead. And in the two cases that we have in the Old Testament, and that's telling, two cases of rape, in both cases, the girl demanded that the young man who had violated her be her husband. Think of Dinah. And think of Tamar with Amnon. That's telling. And that shows that they were living in a completely different society where the difficulties and problems of not marrying were so much more severe. We see from this that sex before marriage is clearly sinful in God's eyes and also has serious social consequences. Why else would God give such serious financial penalties even to fornication? Five years' wages. Think about it. That means it's not nothing when and if it occurs, brothers and sisters. And indeed, that means we need to take it seriously. And if sin occurs, God's law also shows us how to make that right, how to do the right thing. And indeed, there is a basic obligation to marry if intercourse before marriage has occurred. But God's law also shows that the father or the parents of the girl need to take into question whether such a marriage is going to be profitable. It also shows that confession needs to be made. It's not enough to think, well, we've, we've secretly perhaps sinned together. We should together pray to God and ask for forgiveness and then bury it. Because God's law shows that the offended party, when something like this happens, are the parents of the girl. For they had the responsibility from God to look after their daughter, to give their daughter away in marriage, morally upright. And when this has happened, a young man needs to confess his sin to the parents of the girl concerned. I remember well, in my first congregation many years ago, such, uh, such a sin had occurred. The young man concerned at first wrote it off as, well, you know, we all sin, don't we? But when he was shown from Scripture that he needed to confess to the father of his intended bride, 
his sin, he became incredibly nervous. Because, you see, the father of his girlfriend was the kind of man that could fly into a fit of rage. And he was quite seriously scared that he would be beaten up. Nevertheless, we talked it through. And that young man went to his prospective father-in-law, confessed his sin, and was so surprised at what happened. Because when his father-in-law saw that this young man was honest enough, and before God faithful enough to recognize his sinfulness and to confess it, the relationship between the two was sealed in a good way forevermore. In fact, a few years back when I was in the Netherlands, I happened to be dining with a friend of mine in a restaurant in that very village, and that man with his family and five children happened to be at a further table. I didn't recognize him, but he recognized me, walked over, and thanked me for marrying him. I thought, what a nice what a nice and pleasant thing to see that the Lord had blessed also that marriage. Reconciliation is a great good. And that is what Scripture speaks about, brothers and sisters, confessing our sins to one another and being reconciled not just with God but with brothers and sisters whom we have offended. That brings me to the presuppositions of these laws. You might think that we've gone through them, we've hopefully understood how they worked in Israel. A few basic principles have become clear. What else is there to say? Well, there are a few things to say yet. In the first place, when you see how the Lord God dealt with these kinds of things in Israel... The one thing that shines through clear and bright is that for the Lord God, marriage is a legal covenant. It binds two people together, but it is a covenant that has implications for society. It's a covenant. It's not in Israel just about two people shacking up together and from now on we're married. It has legal implications. And for that reason, in Israel, there was an actual written marriage covenant. The prophet Malachi even uses that word, that same word as for the relationship between God and his church, that word covenant, for a marriage contract. It's called a covenant, which shows also that there were witnesses. Because it's a legal contract, you need to think very carefully about how these laws also might be used. In New Testament times, the rabbis also saw the need to prevent a misuse of these laws by a young man. This has implications for how we view Joseph, the prospective husband of Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus. You see, the rabbis had said, if you want to be able to sue on the basis of having been contracted to marry somebody that turns out not to be a virgin, 
you will need to be able to prove that it wasn't you that made her no longer to be a virgin. And so the practice was, if you're going to be able to prove that, the only way to prove that is with witnesses to have the is to establish the fact that you have never been alone with your bride-to-be before the marriage. So when you were courting somebody, and you could court somebody in Israel as well, but when you were courting somebody, you always had to be in the company of others and never alone, not only to prevent temptation, but also to prevent the ability to make a false accusation. In Scripture, when Joseph discovers that his wife-to-be, Mary, is pregnant, we're told that he was a righteous man and that he decided to put her away quietly. Now, as we've seen, it would have been his right to do so. The death penalty would have been a maximum penalty in the eyes of Joseph. He did not want that for Mary. But he did have the right to take action, and so he sues, or that's at least his intention, to sue for divorce in court. And because he's called a righteous man, Matthew is making the point, Joseph had the ability to sue in court to annul the marriage. In other words, he had never before been alone with Mary, and he could prove that. As we further reflect upon the laws, brothers and sisters, there's also the interesting question, if somebody's guilty, and there is actually to be a death penalty, who does the stoning? And we are told in verse 21 that they're to bring the young woman out to the door of her father's house and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones. What does that tell us about marriage? Marriage is something that is important not just to the family concerned. It's important for the whole community. So that marriage is a fundamental building block of society. And society must do its best to protect marriage. And so... If a marriage is registered by the state, and it was in Israel and still is in Australia today, it is the responsibility of the state, or at least it ought to be, to protect marriage and to punish violation of marriage. And we see that quite clearly here. It's not the respective family that's been victimized by the young man that gets to carry out a death penalty. It is the men of the village, the corporate responsibility of society. We've seen also, and briefly already talked about, the fact that these laws also presuppose the responsibility of parents in giving their daughters away in marriage. When we have a a marriage in church, You see the father usually walking his bride down the aisle proudly and giving her away. That's not just some kind of symbolic thing that we do in English tradition. That has its roots in Scripture. The responsibility is with the parents to give their daughters away. You see that right already in Genesis chapter 2. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Not the other way around. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. The man leaves his parents. The wife is given away. Well, if it's parental responsibility, brothers and sisters, then that also explains why a fine, as in these laws, is directed to the parents and paid out to them. But it also implies for us the responsibility of parents to prepare their children for marriage. And that means talking with children, not just warning them about dangers and about sin, but talking to them about the beauty of marriage and of the gift and of the intimacy in marriage. That's an important thing that is sometimes so sorely lacking in upbringing. It's so easy to assume, oh, my children will know this by now. But it's important for parents to sit down with children and to speak about the beautiful thing that God has given us called the marriage institution. And to talk about the importance, therefore, of purity before marriage and of keeping oneself pure for marriage and not soiling that beautiful experience with other memories that will pollute the intimacy of a marriage in the future. Finally, I think one thing that's crystal clear in these laws is the primary responsibility of the guy when something goes wrong. He's the one that gets fined, not the girl. He's the one that has to fork out, whether it's five or ten times, an annual wage for a laborer. He's the one that will therefore have to sort out the consequences when he does not have the money to pay for it. The guy must take full responsibility. Now, that doesn't absolve girls, of course, and everybody has to make their peace and reconciliation with God. But socially speaking, the onus of responsibility is firmly placed upon the man in these laws. And the woman is, whenever possible, given the benefit of the doubt. That brings us to the implications. I want you to reflect with me on the Sermon on the Mount of the Lord Jesus. When the Lord Jesus goes through the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, each and every time again, he drives the matter back, not to just things that you can do, but to the heart, to our desires, to our thoughts. For the mind and the heart belong just as much to God as the physical body. And that's also an important point that Lord's Day 41 is making for us. Particularly in the second question and answer. Is it just about adultery and similar shameful sins? Well, no. It's about unchaste gestures, words, thoughts, desires. 
and whatever may entice us or tempt us to sexual sin. Which means, particularly in our day and age, we will want to be wary and on guard against anything that indeed will entice us in a wrong direction. And we'll need to be wary of the kind of novels that we read, the kind of films that we watch, the opportunities that are presented in our society for pornography. We need to be on guard for our hearts. And for the married, we need to be on guard that we keep the marriage alive even also in its intimacy together. That it's not just a thing about now and then a momentary pleasure, but an intimacy that is much fuller and bounded by love. Meaning that men, even if you've been married for I don't know how many years, still need to woo their wives. And women need also to be wooed. And to be the kind of woman that their man fell in love with in the first place. Meaning, we need to be there for each other. And we need to protect marriage. And we need to keep away all those things that the Satan has brought into secular society to turn it upside down, to remove marriage as the cornerstone of our society, knowing that society will then completely fall apart for him. But if we do protect marriage, brothers and sisters, then we can give God the thanks and the praise for the gift of this institution and the wonderful intimacy that it brings. And may indeed he be praised also for this gift. Amen.